0: Smart Counsel is a joint production of Multnomah University Alternative Behavioral Therapy and New Pattern Counseling. Joshua Moore is a counselor at Alternative Behavioral Therapy in Vancouver, Washington, who specializes in neurofeedback and trauma. Reese Pasimio is a counselor at New Pattern Counseling in Gresham, Oregon, who specializes in addictions, sexuality, gender, and spirituality. Thanks for listening and for joining the conversation.
1: Welcome to Smart Counsel, a brief summary of EMDR. Smart Counsel provides perspectives and resources on spirituality, mental health addictions, relationships, and trauma to providers and students of mental health addiction, social work, psychiatric services everywhere. I'm Reese.
2: I'm Joshua Moore.
1: And we are delighted to welcome Jean Meyer into the Counseling House with us for today's conversation. Thank you. Glad to, glad to have you here. So we are going to talk about some really fun things. We're going to talk about EMDR, what it is, what it's not, how it works, how it doesn't work. Jean, tell me a little bit, uh, who are you? What do you do? What's what's your corner of the, the counseling world?
3: So I'm uh, LMHC in Washington and an LPC in Oregon. Um, and I also have a master's addiction counselor uh, certification through NADAC, which is a National Addiction Organization. Um, You can relate to
2: that, Reese.
1: I can indeed. I am with NADAC as well. I don't
3: know that I've ever met anybody who's also in NADAC. Yeah.
1: So we should definitely be buddies. (laughs) I
2: know, right? I know what NADAC is.
3: (laughs) It's it's basically the National Association of Addiction Counseling. Okay. Um, Yeah, I can. So they have have a lot of things.
2: The the, the premier like organization that that disseminates information? Well, they're sort
3: of they, like the ACA in of,
1: of addictions. Yeah, okay.
3: they're in charge of counselors. Got it. Basically, and they oh, do okay. trainings and um, they have a certification program, so mm. you can do like CADC one, two. Oh, or, of course. Yeah, I should know that. Yes, yeah. or uh, or MAC. Mm-hmm. So MAC is the top.
1: Right. And there's like MAC one, MAC two. I think I earned my CADC two here in Oregon, and then got grandfathered into an MAC one through some promotion they were offering a while ago. Is uh, it a federal program? Uh, yeah, it's federal. Uh, it's national. it's national. Oh, national. Sorry, that's yeah. What
2: I'm Sorry,
3: <laughs> national. Yeah, it's not associated with the government at all. Right. Gotcha. Yeah.
1: All right. So, see you with NADAC. You're with Oregon. You're with Washington.
3: Yes. Um, and I've worked in. Uh, community mental health and addiction co-occurring disorders for 20 something years um, in Oregon and Washington and um, just started a private practice about five and a half-ish years ago.
1: That's exciting. What's your clinical specialty?
3: Right now I am focusing on uh, trauma recovery. And
2: I'm uh, a former I guess, what would you refer to it? I was, I did my associate, supervisee, thank you. Uh, I did my uh, associate license under Gene Meyer, uh, where I studied EMDR under Gene and uh, got to learn about all kinds of interesting things like dissociation and trauma um, and had a relatively good experience, which is why I referred Reese to Gene for EMDR training at some point.
1: It's true. Yes. So I had in my clinical journey come to the point where I th- I thought, okay, I should take the plunge. I should learn what this EMDR magic is that everybody's raving about. And
2: well for our consistent listeners, Reese has been talking for about three three weeks about, like, oh, I should start learning EMDR. Like, we've heard your (laughs) ponderings come through the channel. It's true.
1: It's true. As Josh is always talking about the neurofeedback and the brain, and then I have another colleague who, he does EMDR a whole bunch, and, like, I visited him, and he's telling me story after story about this, like, miraculous intervention he did with, like, the bilaterals, and I'm, like. Oh my goodness, I need that. Okay, 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 okay. You
2: you heard about it during your training that you went off to recently.
1: I did. Oh, yes. So I was taking uh, Module 2 of the Certified Sex Addiction Therapist Training, and uh, Module 2 was all about supporting partners and working with betrayal trauma and a lot about trauma in general, a lot about attachment trauma, And for treatment modalities, uh, EMDR was brought up very often as, hey, this is something, aside from family systems therapy, that you should be seriously considering doing. And so that kind of shifted me out of uh, contemplation into preparation, and I thought, okay. Next year, after <laughs> after happening. some after some finances line up, uh, I'll do take the plunge. And so then I said, Josh, because I know you do it. I said, Josh, who should I study from? And he said, You should study from Jean Meyer. She's the best. And I said, Okay. And so um, that and may the, have
2: led to us thinking about a podcast. It
1: may yes. have, which brings you here. Yes. And now Gene <laughs> Meyer is here in the couch next to me, so I feel a little bit starstruck. But
3: <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I'm not that good.
2: <laughs> so for our uh, say new therapists or therapists that aren't in the know, um, what do they need to know about EMDR to start off with? Yeah, what does it stand for?
3: That's what I was going to start with. That sounds like a good idea. That's a good thing. stands <laughs> for eye movement, desensitization, and reprocessing. So the thing that people notice the most about it is the eye movements. It uh, seems like a pretty unusual, hokey thing to do in therapy, but there's a lot more to it.
1: There, there's a lot more to it. Than that, uh, Yia talked about there being uh, eight, eight whole stages to it, uh, of which the actual bilateral stimulation is but one aspect of it.
3: Yeah, it's phase four.
1: That's phase four of eight. Yes. All right. Um, Perhaps, Chance, would you be willing to give us a run-through of what are the other seven stages of EMDR?
3: Well, let me talk a minute about what it's good for. Oh, yes, please. Um, so... The most effective use of EMDR is when somebody has had like a car accident and they're having nightmares, they can't get in a car anymore, um, panic attacks, that kind of thing. They relive the accident over and over and over again. So that's what we call a single incident trauma. And EMDR is so incredibly effective for that Um you can do somewhere between four and six sessions and the PTSD symptoms are just gone. Um, so that it's most effective for that. You most of us work with more complex trauma than that, multiple traumas and uh, and then it just gets more complicated. So there's uh, there's a bunch of different protocols now depending on, kind of what the problem is and what the symptoms are.
2: Yeah, I think when I was uh, practicing EMDR more consistently, I, you know, had the experience of having the single incident trauma clients come in and then very quickly graduate. And so you might not feel like you do that very often, even though they could make up a majority of your client, they're not going to be the ones that you see very often. And so the ones that you remember are the ones that tend to accumulate you know, in your clinical caseload are the ones that are coming in for more than four weeks. Um, the ones that might stick around and need some more advanced protocols. Uh, I personally refer out. <laughs> <laughs> yeah,
3: I, you know, my preference is to, is for people to come in, have symptoms, me, you know, do my thing, and then they don't have symptoms anymore. And then we're all happy, and they don't need to see me anymore. But uh, things are more complex than that. So I've been seeing people quite a bit longer than I... Mm-hmm. Really had intended when I went into private practice. But, you know, I've also had um, people come in who had one guy who was a railroad worker and witnessed somebody being hit by a train. And so, you know, nightmares, reliving it, couldn't eat, um, couldn't sleep, couldn't stop the thoughts. Mm-hmm. And so we went through the EMDR protocol. And so the first session is kind of who are you and what do you want from me?
1: <laughs> right, a standard intake A standard,
3: planning. yes. And then... Um, <laughs> we,
2: Sorry, it just cracked me up a little bit. <laughs> who are you, what do you want from me? <laughs>
3: <laughs> and then we um, kind of developed what the primary symptoms were and kind of prepared him for... So I'm talking about the phases now. Um, prepared him for the actual processing. And I think he came four times and then he was done. So I wanted to check in with him one more time just to make sure that it was all processed and he wasn't having any symptoms or anything. But, you know, he was a railroad worker and he was done.
2: Straight to the point.
1: There we go.
3: So he was like, yep, thanks. Bye. But that does
2: resonate with someone who might be a little more solution focused oriented. Um, and I think, I think I, uh, I'm not sure if I was there when we first met or if I just like evolved into that. Um, but I, I do love the idea of like, well, what are we here to do? How would you know if you had succeeded? Um, to kind of have that down on paper and that when you check it off, you're like, okay, what's left? Nothing. Okay. Have, have a good time. Like, call me if you need me. You know, know,
3: I think it's really, really important for clients to have goals because Mm -hmm. they, you know, they come and they see us and they're like, okay, I'm just like here doing and you get kind of lost in terms of yeah what you came for. And you don't realize progress that you've made. So if you have, you know, concrete goals that you've just written down and you check in, Mm
2: -hmm.
3: you know, every three months or whatever and say, okay, so this is what we started with. And how are we doing? And they're just amazed that they've made progress because it's, you know, internal and, Other people see it a lot more than the person who's getting the therapy. Mm -hmm. So I think that it's very... I didn't for a long time when I was working in agencies think that it was therapeutic at all to have all these goals and paperwork and grr. But I learned how therapeutic that can be when you let it instead of just resenting it.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: I, I had a similar experience. Well when so when I worked in community mental health also, it was very much, you know, I'm fresh out of school and it kind of had a little bit of a psychoanalysis emphasis to to my education and we we're more it was we we're more taught how to be relational and you know have all these conversations, talk about your relationship with your father and you know, all these things. And then I get into community mental health, and it's like, you know, you need your diagnosis within 90 minutes, and then your treatment plan within 48 hours, and then every six weeks or three months or something, you need to turn in this form and that form and that form and that form, and you know, measurable outcomes, measurable outcomes, measurable outcomes. And I was like, no more effing and measurable outcomes. Um but uh, but yes, but but now I can see too that um, as much as I can feel kind kind of restraining its measurable milestones. So you yeah. can see tangible progress, which is kind of encouraging. And, and then I think, once I started actually experiencing what it's like to have a client without clear goals, those conversations just kind of wander and wander and wander. And then I find myself getting really irritated <laughs> and thinking, what are we doing again? Why are you here? Why don't you have friends? Um,
3: and, and that's what they're thinking too, is like, why am I here? I just, I just do this, this is just what I do. It's like routine and comforting rather than actually trying to heal and then knowing that you're done with your therapist. For sure. It's like, okay, I've gotten everything that I need from her, Yeah. I'm done.
1: I think another turning point was one time in community mental health where I inherited a client who'd been there since like 1996 or something like that uh, and I thought, why are you still here? Oh, symptoms, but, but still it was like, but that, I mean, I mean, granted, some people their condition warrants ongoing care, and and there's those, those situations. But um, like, if he can get away without being a lifetime client, I think that'd be really great. So, this idea of having therapy, having a, an understanding that therapy is a it's a finite relationship, it's meant to have an endpoint. You're meant to outgrow your therapist and hopefully grow into your own organic community. Um,
3: well, I think it's important for people to be successful.
1: Absolutely. Other to say, so speaking about measurable outcomes and SMART goals and things like that, so it's sounding like EMDR in many cases is sort of a brief therapy intervention or fits within it, that model?
3: It depends on what people are coming in for. So, what we've found is that, you know, people will come in for, you know, they've had, you know, one specific trauma and And they're having like PTSD symptoms around that and we will treat those symptoms, which then get better. But along the way, we find out that there's other trauma in their lives, which made them susceptible to PTSD with that trauma. And so then they get to decide whether or not they're done or they want to process some of the previous work. And also people will come in with anxiety, panic attacks, and Phobias like uh, dentists, Mm -hmm. that's a good one. (laughs) And people will come in and we'll, you know, do the reprocessing around the fear of going to the dentist. And basically what that looks like is reprocessing the kind of physiological and emotional feelings that people have every step of the way going to the dentist. Like from scheduling the appointment to walking in the office and smelling the office, just sitting in the chair, to all of that. Um, and then we discover that there's something that happened in the past that just makes it impossible to lay in a chair with your mouth open.
1: So it might start with, here's a single kind of recent trauma, but then uh, understanding that trauma involves coming to understand, oh, there, there's been other traumas. And, and those well, are... Well, it's and kind of ling- like
2: saying I've got this sensation in my body. And the sensation when I think about it, it has this I am statement, like I'm not safe. And that whatever event they come in the door saying this is the causal event, it usually isn't. It's usually not the only event in their life that built that sensation and built that that network in their brain. And so when you when you do some processing on that, it kind of leads you back to kind of this Rolodex type effect where you're going through all the other experiences previously not mentioned that that actually built that experience up to what it was going to be
1: yeah the the visual in my mind and mm-hmm. tell me if this works or not is the like the like the old ancient cities like you know like the ancient city of jericho or something like you know there's there's a the city itself but if you excavate underneath it you find the the previous incarnation of jericho buried underneath it and <laughs> right, then yeah. the previous for incarnation buried beneath that and then there might be like you know there's these cities on hills that are actually like you know eight different destroyed versions right, of the maybe city. there wasn't a hill right <laughs> yeah. uh so all that to say like so there's this, this more recent event that's built on the ruins of these other or built on the symptoms of these other more ancient traumas, maybe more ongoing traumas.
3: I think the other thing that I would add to that metaphor is that there are roads that connect different cities. Uh Mm -hmm. And so the language that we use in EMDR is that there are nodes, but it's just like the roads. So if each city is a traumatic event, there's all these experiences that happen around that you know, physiological um, experiences like what time of year it was, what time of day was it, how hot, how cold, what were you wearing, Um, what kind of physical sensations did you have, what did you hear, Uh, what did it smell like there, What what kind of taste did you have. All of that information is stored in your city. We keep using that metaphor. But there could be another city that had the same smell and so when we start processing like this city then the road leads us to this other city where they had a similar experience and um, so then we have to make some decisions about what we want to do about that do we want to go there and process that um, and continue the healing or do we want to close it up and you know, it's up it's up to the client as to what they want to do, how far they want to go. But I've definitely had clients uh, get mad at me because they discovered there were other cities. And they're <laughs> like, hey, did you know that that was... I was like, yeah, well...
2: Maybe. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. We're a suspicious bunch, us therapists. Yeah. Well, <laughs> well, you know, when you've, sure.
3: when you've worked with a lot of people, you kind of have an idea of what's going on underneath the symptoms.
1: So I uh, recently read or actually listened to the, the book uh, Mindsight by, by Dan Siegel, which was great. I, I love his work. But um, he's talking a little bit about trauma there, too, and it's making me think about some of what you're talking about with this idea of like the, the interconnected experiences or recognizing that a, a current event or some current sensory data that is not from a, tr- or some, some current sensory data will remind your like implicit memory or your limbic system about a similar bit of sensory data that was associated with this other painful thing. And then, so that's part of the, the interconnected nodes thing yes. you're talking about, yes. And, the,
3: and that's why the EMDR protocol activates all of that. So, we're activating the kind of the cognitive piece of it, um, the memory of whatever the incident was, and then we also activate the physiological sensory experiences. We really pay a lot of attention to that, like, okay, what is your body feeling like right now um, as we talk about this? What? How is it reacting to this? Which is a much better question than. (laughs) So, what do you notice in your body right now? Because most people are like cut off. Yeah. From physical sensations, but if you ask, um, you know, how is your body responding to us talking about it? Okay. They're able to answer, which is fascinating. But in any event, um, so we're activating the memory, um, we're activating the physiological sensations, we're activating uh, cognitive pieces of it. Uh, we're looking at what we call negative cognitions and then positive cognitions. So the negative cognitions are basically what in the addiction field we call thinking errors. Mm-hmm. And so fundamental negative beliefs that people have when they've you know, gone through a trauma. So one of the basic ones is I'm not safe at any time, anywhere. I am not safe because they still are not feeling safe from whatever it is that happened. So we figure out what that cognition is and and then uh, and what the emotion is that's around that um, experience, and then we measure how intense the emotion is. So... Um, we use a SUD score. And so people will rate themselves as far as how intense the emotion is. Then we'll come up with the negative cognition. And then what it's interesting helping people see a positive cognition. Um, because somebody who doesn't feel safe at all, if you turn it around and you're like, no, I'm safe. like they will never get there but you can say I'm safe sometimes and they won't believe it at all in that moment Um, and so we measure that with a validity of cognition scale Um, and then we do kind of check in with the physiological sensations and then we start the bilateral processing Yeah.
1: And I'm really curious to hear about the bilateral processing because I think up until that point, a lot of the process you're describing sounds like just CBT work. Like you think, what's I mean, what's the event? What are the emotions? What are the thoughts? What are the, the primary underlying cognitions? And then maybe digging deeper and say, okay, well, what were the initial experiences way back when that created those cognitions? And, you know, you can do all of that detective work kind of, I mean, that's kind of what a good CBT therapist might might do is is dig that far. Um, but then you bring up a good point that sometimes these things are just so deep that it's not really a sufficient answer to say, okay, well, you've identified the core pathological thought that you believe. Now just believe the opposite. Just, you know, think a happy thought.
3: Because <laughs> that works. Yeah, right, right, right. Um, there's a
1: reason why we have clients. There's a reason why we have it's clients. It's not working somewhere else. Right. <laughs> because as much as there's a lot of power in thoughts and the way we think is really important. Uh, there's also, there's also the body involved, you know, referencing. So we've got, you got the
3: somatic yeah. component that CBT ignores.
1: Right. And so it seems like, um, there, there's this barrier we run into where I kind of can tell myself what I should be believing, but my body still believes the old thing or my limbic system or my implicit memory. Mm-hmm. And
2: and how do I convince my body to change its mind? The, the the cognitive, like conscious mind, is on board, but the, there's a whole lot more that isn't. Yeah, right. Prefrontal
3: <laughs> cortex is like, okay, sure. we got this figured out. The, limbi- <laughs> right. the limbic system is like, okay,
0: <laughs> red you red have their, red it red out. Nope. <laughs> <red out. red> yeah.
3: <laughs> 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 you d- clearly do not understand. Yeah. Right. And the hippocampus is in the middle, going, "Oh, guys, please don't fight." <laughs> <laughs> <laughs>
1: oh, yes. So, so then, enter bilaterals.
3: Well, I want to follow up on what you just said. Okay. So, one of the things about um, EMDRs is is not a standalone therapy. So, you know, we've all been trained in whatever discipline we've been trained, and everything that we know and every um, skill that we have, you use along with the EMDR. Therapy protocol um, especially in the preparation phase which is phase two uh, phase one by the way is just history taking like everybody does um, so phase two is the preparation phase and so that's about building rapport identifying you know the problems and also getting somebody ready to do the emotional work or the processing um, so people use whatever skills, experience, training they have in that phase two um, to get people ready to do the processing. So just to kind of go back to what we were saying before, um, what, one of the things I've always hated about therapists is that, you know, you, you can go in and you can talk about stuff, and it triggers you, and then the session is over, and then you walk out, and you're trying to ride your bike home, and you can't because you're too triggered. Don't ask me how I know that. Um, (laughs) So the thing that we do in EMDR is that we purposely trigger people, but then when we reprocess it, those triggers are gone. So people will come in, they get really, really upset, During the reprocessing, people get, the feelings get more intense and then it's just over and it doesn't ever come back.
1: Like there's been like this backlog of emotion stored up somewhere and like we like filter it or process it or or vent it
2: or, and then. No. Yeah. I would say that that's kind of how it can feel like in CBT, but that's not how EMDR functions. Okay.
3: Yeah, so so basically what we're doing is we're stimulating these different parts of the brain, right? Right. So we got the prefrontal cortex going. We got the limbic system going. Right. And um, and then we also have in various parts of the brain that, you know, process auditory, visual, all of that. So we've got all that active at the same time. And then we add the bilateral stimulation, which... Um, there are different forms. So eye movements is one. Um, and basically what we do as therapists is we have people like follow a finger or a pen or magic wand or whatever. We just move it back and forth in front of their eyes and they just follow it um, horizontally at first and then gets a little more complex later Um But So that's the eye movement part. But you can also do uh, tactile bilateral stimulation in a couple of ways. So we have these gadgets that um, have these little, I call them pulsers. Yeah, sure. Mm -hmm. Um, But these little things that you hold and they just vibrate a little bit. And you have some um, control over how fast and how intense and that kind of thing with it. But it just buzzes. You know, right, left, right, left, Just bzz, 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 bzz. and um, so that's tactile bilateral stimulation. Um, and then there's auditory also. So same gadget. Um, I've got headphones, and then you can uh, program the tones. People have uh, options as far as what tone they want to listen to. The double click is the most favorite. Um, anyway. So there's the auditory, there's the tactile, and then there's the eye movement. And what we've found is that the eye movements are the most effective for processing the traumatic material. It works faster. And the tactile is really, really good at um, calming the system down, but you can also use it to process. So we're learning more and more about kind of how the bilateral stimulation and the differences affect people.
1: But essentially, so we would do the bilaterals because in going back and doing the CBT-ish work, uh, activating the memory, activating the different parts of the brain, um, it's the brain is, is in a state of arousal because it's been triggered. But the bilaterals help the brain to process all of that activation arousal so that what was first triggering is no longer triggering, something
2: like that. Well, the, the brain is in a state of arousal, but it's not like it's in an optimal type of arousal. Like it's not like right, it's freaking <laughs> out. <laughs> yeah, this isn't this isn't an integrative pattern in the brain. Not
3: not at the beginning. Yeah. So yeah, exactly. when we yeah. set it up, mm-hmm. um, which is phase three, um, it, it's all just people freaking out and feeling very very bad. Um, and then we add the bilateral stimulation and what we think is that we're making the brain do a whole bunch of different things at the same time so one of the things we're making it do is um, you know be introspective like this is what's going on with me this is how I feel you know this is what I think but also make it pay attention to what's happening in real time in the world like Oh, look, there's tones. One's in the right ear, and then it's in the left ear. and then it's, So the body's having to pay attention to the external also. And then the bilateral, um, the different hemispheres get uh, stimulated, right, left, right, left, right, left. So we're making the brain do a whole bunch of different things, and somehow what that does is it allows the way that that traumatic memory is stored in the brain open up to basically present time. So when we have uh, PTSD, we have a trauma, we are still living as if that event is happening right now. And it's kind of complicated, but um, what EMDR does is it breaks that open so that a memory is just a memory.
2: Well, it's kind of like saying when you think about that is your hippocampus active or is your amygdala active and, and quite literally that's the difference between something that's a trigger and something that's no longer a trigger because it's again like,
1: the hippocampus is long-term handles memory handles mem- uh if i remember right the hippocamp- <laughs> yeah so like you're your implicit memory is always taking things in and working but like um the hippocampus will convert an implicit memory into an explicit memory so that it can essentially you can close that file and not have a be in the present anymore. There's
2: also a big difference between like time awareness, like one, like there's hyper arousal of the body, as well as sometimes some cognitive or delusional elements where it's like, maybe I'm not really safe. It's like, well, that, that was true once, but that memory's not like now, that memory is in the past. And, and the hippocampus is pretty good at like knowing here and there and now and not now. And um, the amygdala is distinctly not good at that. Right. <laughs> And so if the hippocampus gets short-circuited by, by too much stress, or if it's maybe
3: fear. I'm not fear. sure. Fear. Yeah, fear. Mm-hmm. Okay. You know, it's all a fear response.
2: Okay. Well, there's a possibility that the memory is not imprinted on the hippocampus at all. I mean, there's some speculation. It could be that it's imprinted on the amygdala, and that integration occurs when the imprintation is, is now in the hippocampus, and there might be some connections between why we do eye movements and why rapid eye movement in sleep causes memories to go to the hippocampus. There might be a connection between the two, Right, because it's really exciting.
1: Because the goal of what the hippocampus does is to convert current memories, current experiences into past ones so they can be in the past. And when there's a traumatic stress or traumatic experience, part of one major feature of that, if I'm understanding right, is that um, a significant part of your brain doesn't recognize that that thing is in the past. Your your prefrontal cortex can remember it's in the past, but um, like the limbic system and parts of your brain will think it's still happening or still or the think that yeah, the it's responding. Is
3: still mm-hmm. Your limbic system is responding as if it's still happening. Mm, okay. And just a little trivia: the hippocampus is uh, smaller in people who have PTSD.
2: That that there's so many things that I could speculate, but I won't. <laughs> like, like, what does that mean? Because the hippocampus has neurogenesis those cells can grow they can change there's a lot of hope for those individuals um, well the hippocampus but, but does, it does increase
3: yeah. <laughs> you know mm-hmm. once the ptsd is resolved mm-hmm. the hippocampus gets bigger
2: yeah yeah i mean it can it can grow and there's neurogenesis in the brain we know that for like there's four or five different ways that you can get that but the hippocampus is very has a lot of neurogenesis unlike the rest of the brain and it can grow, it can grow that's exciting but but I mean the implications of it being small suggest that there's a it's lot of unintegrated working. stuff and, and that when you have trauma, the nervous system this is maybe my own speculation, the nervous system breaks, and we stop we stop integrating a lot of things, not just our trauma, but we become very fractured people with very uh, unintegrated daily experiences potentially
3: yeah, I think you know when 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 we're afraid all the time, we never feel safe. Mm -hmm. Most of our energy is going to go towards dealing with that. And then, you know, anything else that we would do normally is impacted. Mm -hmm. So once the fear is not there anymore, then the way that we think and feel and operate is completely different.
2: Yeah, the system resumes... It's original design, <laughs> perhaps. It's original design, which
3: some people <laughs> yeah. may have never experienced or they don't remember ever experiencing. So it's that, I think that's why people kind of see it as miraculous, mm-hmm. is because it, you know, it does change what's happening in terms of the limbic system. You, um, the parasympathetic nervous system gets activated, people calm down. Um, It's pretty dramatic, actually. Um, So you're doing the bilateral stimulation, and you do a few sets, which just means kind of back and forth and back and forth. And then you stop to check and see whether or not the person is processing. So at the end of a set, then I'll ask somebody, okay, what do you notice right now? And they can notice so many different things. Uh, Sometimes people will notice, you know, like a clock in the room, or they'll notice that their stomach is getting tight, or they'll have memories or images or um, just so many different things that people notice. And what we're looking for is whether or not there's a change between sets. So, And we don't care what the change is. We're not looking for anything specifically. We just want to make sure that there's some kind of change because it means that the reprocessing is happening. So what ends up happening is that the emotions get more and more and more intense, and then they resolve, and it's over. And so some people will start laughing. Some people will just kind of go, okay, that was weird. Um, There's all kinds of reactions that people have.
2: The laughing one fascinates me. I'm wondering if you know why. I, I don't. I'm really genuinely curious because I see that with neurological treatments with head maybe injuries. Maybe relief? When we hit the right spot, they, they giggle. Yeah, I not know. And I've seen it in EMDR as well. I don't know. It's, there's something, it's something way more neurological, way mm-hmm. more uh, uh, reflex oriented when you hit the sweet spot, for lack mm-hmm. of a better term. Uh, sometimes the clients will giggle. And I've seen it with a few different therapies. And I know... That giggling is always good. <laughs> That's all I know. I don't know why they do it, um, and it's most common with head injuries. Um, but but I've seen it in a number of other cases. It's strange. There's something to that we haven't discovered yet. Yeah, <laughs> well, there's
3: a lot we don't know.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: But in some of this, parenthetically, I'm feeling like a good bit of like clinical etiquette to consider is so when. Um, Hopefully, we as therapists are not telling people to just get over their feelings. Uh, although I know people sometimes it
2: sounds like they are.
1: Sometimes it sounds like they are. Uh, uh, some I know people say that to each other. I know I have a lot of clients who come in and say, Oh, yeah, this or this thing happened that was painful, this loss, that breakup, this whatever it was. Uh, but that was in the past. I feel like I should be over it by now. And it sounds like that, like, uh, air quotes, getting over it experience is kind of like what you're talking about, like the resolution of the symptoms, the heightened arousal. Yeah,
3: it feels like letting go, you know, so, you know, when you've gone through something, you're like, I just can't let it go. That's what it feels like. It's like, okay, I just let it go. It's gone.
1: But it's not specifically a volitional.
2: Oh, I'm going to make a choice and then well, let it if go. You, if you felt your body let go of something, you would you would know it. But yeah. it's not it's not a cognitive process. That's anymore. what i it's, it's it's very
1: bodily,
3: like non conscious. Yeah, and that I wouldn't even say body, even though
2: it really can be. There's some there's other pieces to you that have to let go of that. So
1: when a person says, because you're oh.
3: activating all these different yeah. parts of the brain that are doing have different functions, so you're activating all of those at the same time. And, you know, the brain, just like the rest of the body, has its own, um, you know, healing motivation, so to speak. So, you know, you cut yourself and your body goes into automatic to make sure that you don't die from it. And the same thing happens with the brain, but there are things that happen that prevent the brain from healing. And so what we're doing in EMDR is we're just setting up the conditions so that the brain can heal itself. And then it does.
2: Right. We're kind of acutely aware that there are certain things that we experience that we're not healing. Like, like, for example, like a panic attack. It's like, well, we have this panic attack. And at the end of it, it's not like anything substantial has changed, which is going to prevent it next time. If anything, it's getting worse, almost like a seizure.
3: Because um, then you have the fear that you're going right. to have a panic attack. And then you have the fear of the fear of having...
2: He Just goes on and on. on, and, on. Uh, and so 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 there's there's like this learning part of your brain, which, which scientists have kind of nailed down. Oh, it's over here and it's over here and it's over here. Oh yeah, they're all idle during a panic attack, by the way. That's not a coincidence. And when we're triggered, we see some of the same behaviors because it's like when you're triggered, it's not like we see that being integrative naturally. And that's the reason why people come in for therapy. It's like, oh, I keep getting triggered and I'm not healing. Well, it's like, okay, well, we need some sort of intervention that's going to... Uh, put the nervous system in a specific integrative mental state while this is active
3: yeah and the thing that that i kind of feel sad about is clients will come in and they're beating themselves up because they can't let go of whatever was horrible that they experienced and it's like no you can't
1: yeah it's not literally, that you not literally
3: you cannot let it go there's a There's a problem going on with the way that your brain is is working. So
1: you're physically not able to let go of it.
3: Physically not able to let go of it. And so let's, you know, change things and Mm -hmm. then it'll happen. So the other kind of fascinating thing about it is that, you know, people will go through this really intense process and then they'll come back the next week and they'll be like, yeah, I just don't think about it that way anymore.
2: Sometimes they're not sure they ever did.
3: Sometimes they are not sure that they ever did. <laughs> I have so to read my the,
2: notes again to them. Like, the healing,
3: <laughs> I know. Well, see, that's one of the reasons why I keep the suds and the um, yeah, you have to validity go take good of notes. cognition because I've got it on paper right there how intense this felt oh, when we yeah. started and <laughs> what it was like when we finished. So um The so mind we is a strange that. place. What's that?
2: <laughs> the mind is very strange. Very strange. Yeah.
3: Well, you don't remember... These states when it's over,
2: mm-hmm.
3: so people can like vaguely remember, oh, yeah, that's right. Um, yeah, Ooh. or but other people notice
1: for sure because other people don't know they're when like, you're shifting people. from cortex mode to limbic mode, they just say, Oh, they're angry now. Those so. in
2: your life who are deeply affected by your behavior,
1: yes, <laughs> <laughs> so. Yeah, But I mean, that shifting between states and, and each state feeling unfamiliar, I mean, thinking about working with people in recovery, I mean, I hear that sort of experience talked about a lot of like, I'm in sober recovery mode and able to think clearly and make conscious choices and things. And then, you know, I know, you know, shift into, you know, relapse mode or active use mode. And it's like a completely different person that I don't recognize and I don't like and is not welcome, but it's still me. But it's, you know, very foreign to who my ideal self is.
3: Yeah, I think we're getting into something. Oh, okay okay he's, he's, <laughs> he's, right, a, right.
2: he's an addictions specialist I over here <laughs> so. well
3: i am too yeah. so yeah. Mm-hmm. and there's just that's a specialized protocol isn't it e- there that's, is an emdr mm-hmm. protocol okay. for addiction um which is interesting but there's also there's other stuff that's okay. going on with addiction okay. that's like another that, day that's
2: another day another day that's,
3: that's definitely you guys should talk day. separately
1: we should <laughs> yeah. it would be fun uh, so another tangent for now, um, before we get back into the eight stages. Um, so you're, so you're talking about, um, like the, the different hemispheres and the bilaterals, um, are, are, uh, a concept that I don't know, don't know is related. Um, I hear sometimes people talk about body movements that like cross the meridian. So mm-hmm. like touching your right hand to your left knee, your, your, some yoga poses that, you know, twist your body in that way. Um, and then that's been presented to me as that's really valuable in helping the brain process. Is that a thing or yeah, I think so. Yeah. Okay.
3: Yeah.
2: Yeah. And I would say there's probably a lot of stuff out there that, that, that acts or uses bilateral elements. Um, mm-hmm. I've, I've seen things that even claim to be non clinical, which I would steer away from, uh, for people who are looking into it. <laughs> um, but I, I, would personally say, as someone who who studied briefly under Gene, that I loved EMDR because all the pieces. Um, I can't imagine taking one piece out and it working as well. Does that make sense? Yeah. Because um,
3: it doesn't. Because it doesn't. There you go. Yeah. <laughs> so,
2: mm-hmm.
3: Do Do you feel like talking about your experience with that one session? Oh, uh,
2: well, my mine. You know, mine was one of those sessions. I've seen this with my clients too. But when I pra- when I was doing EMDR as a client, I experience kind of this like Rolodex experience in your head where it's like, okay, there's all these things flipping, 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 flipping through things that were too fast to even like resemble a memory. It was just like, okay, there's movement, there's shifting, there's like almost energy in your body that's moving and it's it's like churning. And I'm I'm a veteran and I've had like over two hundred mascal, you know, mission critical experiences or something like that. I don't know. You know, I've got I've had a lot. Um and so there's just just so much stuff moving through your nervous system. And I think she's like, you know, the therapist was like, stop. Okay. What's going on right now? And I'm like, don't stop. Just keep it going. Like, like, no, no, just go like, no, no, no time to think. We just got to keep it rolling. You know? And so my experience was a long set of bilateral stimulation that once you get on that train, which is another way that it's sometimes described as like just things moving past you, like on a train car. Um, and we don't just, have to
3: understand it.
2: No, you don't. And, 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 and we do
3: not have to understand it. <laughs>
2: But you go home and you sleep really well and you don't have distressing memories anymore and, you know, flashbacks stop and, you know, your relationships are better. And, um, you know, it's just like you kind of, you know, very easily are like, well, I have to like put myself intentionally try to remember what that life was like. You know, it's not. You can't
3: bring it up. The way no, that it was—it was so intrusive <laughs> before, and then you can't bring it up anymore.
2: Yeah, and I'm, I'm sure things like your posture change. I mean, I, I don't act like I'm in the military. People are sometimes shocked that I was—that I ever served, because it's like, well, you don't—you don't really seem like a veteran. I'm like, I oh, know I'm okay with that. I'm, um, you know, because <laughs> I don't know. Uh, I'm very—I uh, I guess I'm very um, present. Does that right. make
1: sense? Because he went through this process, and so some of the memories and experiences he had. That could have turned into long-term PTSD trauma. They were. Well, I, I have a hard
2: time like knowing what's what in in, in veterans. Um, yeah, but, it but was some PTSD. People,
3: yeah, yeah, PTSD. He definitely <laughs> has symptoms of PTSD. Okay. It's not. It's not what? a shocker. It's right. not. No.
2: <laughs> but
1: because no. you were able to 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 process them yeah. in, through through this way, like like the, the hippocampus was able to do its thing, and now like those are all like securely well, safely you go and home extreme, all, like, all of them, like but
3: yeah, there's you know there's one specific incident that yeah. got processed that was very intense, and then mm-hmm. it got and, better. And that
2: one was like. I think very hard to even come to terms with or grapple with what that was, you know, very, very confusing that the, everything's almost like unconscious. It's again, it's like non-conscious, non-conscious. Not, not, yeah. even <laughs> not even unconscious, unconscious non-conscious. not
3: subconscious. It's like non-conscious. It's like your nervous system is doing these things. And mm-hmm. it
2: feels more like things shifting inside of you. And it feels like, well, I'm a bunch of puzzle pieces and things are just being moved around for like a half hour and, and it's very visceral. So it's like, well, I, I don't, I don't know if everybody's going to have that experience, but I know that if I see my clients having that experience, I'm just going to let it roll. Uh, cause they'll get to the end of it. And it's, it's just really beautiful when you know, they're, they're moving you're just like, okay, we're just going to let this go. Just get to the end of it. <laughs> that does sound really amazing. Mm-hmm.
1: So no, one of my, one of the main questions I'd had coming into this was, uh, knowing about knowing about the bilaterals as being a thing and be thinking about there. There's the eye movements. There's the buzzers. There's the sounds. There's the you know tapping on opposite sides of your chest. There's the butterfly taps, and <clears throat> there's a part of me that well, I won't do this, but um, but for the the person who might be tempted to say, oh well, if it's the, if it's the bilaterals that are soothing and that help process, why can't I just do the bilaterals on their own? Which I'm hearing from you both, you know, is not proper, maybe not safe, uh, and shouldn't be done. Like the thing belongs in its context. Um, maybe, can you say a little bit more about that? And well, I don't know. I also want to hear like all the eight stages cause I haven't heard all that, but what, what, what are, what are the, the eight stages around in which the, the bilaterals live? That so the so bilaterals
3: effective? live in stage four. Okay. Um, and then, um, phase five is kind of reevaluating, so looking at the suds and the validity of cognition again, and seeing what's changed, and then um, and then we close things up. So basically, it's um, I was not ch- trained in hypnosis, but the hypnotherapist that um, that also do EMDR says that a lot of this is um, kind of hypnotherapy that you have somebody, you know, close up and put away any leftover feelings or processing or anything that we're not aware of. Um, so, you know, imagine some kind of container and Well, I, I put have some genuine there.
2: concerns about trying to have the same productive experience without the stimulation of another human being in front of you. Does that make sense? Yeah.
3: Like I you're, think not I was, a, you're not
2: a non-variable as a therapist. No, but I was, I was I was <laughs> talking
3: about the kind of the other mm-hmm. phases before yeah, going yeah, back mm-hmm. to, should you do this on your own? Is this a yeah. self-help thing? Yeah. No, don't. I, I, it's I don't, not a self-help one thing. One is that
2: if you could do it on your own, you shouldn't. But I'm not sure you could. You can't. Yeah. <laughs> okay. We you can't.
3: can't. So <laughs> Now we know. You, <laughs> know. you know, being a therapist who's mm-hmm. used this method since 1996, mm-hmm. And has attempted to use it on myself <laughs> on numerous occasions. I can tell you that you can't. Okay. Um,
1: because you need that resonance with another person, another brain.
3: So it's a non conscious okay. process. Uh, okay. Right? Gotcha. Yeah. So you can't consciously activate a process that's non conscious in yourself, much to my dismay.
2: <laughs> <laughs> Despite efforts. But, <laughs> yes.
3: But you can't, um, even though Francine Shapiro did, and that's how EMDR got discovered in the first place. So that was kind of confusing. But, <laughs> Ask um, an
2: internal family systems therapist, I don't know. <laughs>
3: well, I, I mean, it's interesting. There's, there's so many different components. So there's whatever happens with the hippocampus around the traumatic event. Um, but then there's also the activation of the parasympathetic nervous system. So that you can do on your own with bilateral stimulation. So,
1: so you can calm yourself down in the moment. You
3: can calm yourself down.
1: But the non-conscious processing of the hyperarousal you have because your hippocampus was short-circuited, that needs someone else to activate it. Apparently. Apparently. Well,
2: and I think there's a lot more stimulation of the frontal cortex that comes with being face-to-face with another person that you have attachment with. And so the greater the attachment, maybe the stronger some of those frontal cortex Uh, changes will be. Um, And I think that reduces the risk of dissociation cutting in on your progress. Mm You know, If I'm looking at all the neurological variables, I think that's the mechanism that it serves. And if we are triggered or have PTSD or have flashbacks, there's a pretty good chance that dissociation is going to try to cut off your progress at the knees. Um, And I think that has a lot to do with the frontal cortex. And I think the person in front of you, uh, the therapist, plays a pivotal role in Uh, preventing that from happening I think I think it's one of the pieces
3: there's so many pieces to it right it is very complicated it's very complex
1: so not something to try without training not something to try on your own
3: I wouldn't yeah (laughs) there was you know there was a in the 90s um, late 90s there were a bunch of Therapies in quotes that used bilateral stimulation, and they were, you know, basically triggering people and then adding bilateral stimulation, but they didn't have the rest of the protocol, and they were hurting people, um, which upset me a lot.
1: Yeah, yes, yeah, I'm hearing more. It seems like it would be really easy if this were done poorly or done carelessly or done recklessly. It could. Uh, could cause a lot of damage.
3: Yeah, I mean, if therapist gets scared because of the intensity of the emotion that the client is experiencing and then they stop the process right there, the person's going to be flooded and they're not going to be able to function. That is a horrible thing to do to somebody.
1: Right, and then to send them home.
3: (laughs) And then to send them home, yeah, and they're supposed to ride their bicycle and they don't even know how to do that, but... What you do when you understand that the emotion gets more and more and more intense right before it resolves, sort of like you're riding a bicycle up the hill and you're working, 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 and then you're at the top of the hill and you're just.
1: Okay, so emotion is like that too. Emotion has to build and become intense and then it kind of resolves after that.
3: Yeah, it does. It's kind of sudden. Okay. And sometimes people have physiological sensations. When that happens, like for me, I have kind of this feeling in the back of my head that sort of feels like a zipper. Like it just kind of goes zip when something resolves, goes from being really, really intense to over. So people have physiological sensations too when when that happens. Yeah. Um, so it's very interesting. It's just fascinating.
1: That is super interesting. And Jean, would you briefly recount, just so we have them all in one one place in the episode, uh, what are the eight stages?
3: Okay, so the first um, phase is history-taking. The second phase is preparation. Um, The third phase is what we call assessment, which is a little bit different because the assessment means, um, you know, measuring the SEDs and the validity of cognition. Um, And then... Phase four is the bilateral stimulation. Five is um, checking to see that everything is processed. Um, Then six is closing everything up. So we do the container. But the other thing that we do um, in, in phase two, in the preparation phase, we make sure that people have the emotional resources to go through this kind of intensity and are still going to be okay. So we um, have people develop a peaceful place, and then we activate it with uh, bilateral stimulation, usually tactile, and add in, okay, what does it smell like there? What does it taste like there? What do you hear? Um, and so it activates the parasympathetic nervous system. So once we get everything in the container and lock that up and, Put it away somewhere. Then we have them go to their peaceful place, um, and activate that again, and then they can leave and they're happy.
2: And that seems to prevent anything from echoing uh, or, or minimizing, you know, um, you know that experience from say preventing them from riding their bicycle home, for example. Yes.
3: Mm-hmm. Yeah, because when they ride their bicycle home, they're like. Wow, look at all the colors and the trees <laughs> and the breeze. No, seriously, it's like mm-hmm. a completely different experience. You are not triggered. You are peaceful. You are well, peaceful by the time you leave. I've always been personally
2: pretty amazed at like uh, people who I least expect to kind of to benefit from the peaceful place are usually the ones that benefit the most. So it'd be like kind of that that you know, typical alpha male big guy, you know, who, who has that, that gruff t- job, you know what I mean? You're like, I'm not sure if I can get him to do this, but then they do it. And they're just like, Oh, I love it. You're like, Whoa, okay. <laughs> Maybe he needed it the most. <laughs> well, you know, some people <laughs>
3: have those experiences mm-hmm. where they, you know, were safe and, you know, could just be in the moment. And it was beautiful in childhood and they can access that again in whatever form their imagination creates and then there are people who grew up in horrible childhoods and there is no peaceful place to access so then then that becomes more complicated
1: so the peaceful place is stage seven stage eight
3: is, no stage eight is um, reevaluation so that comes the next session oh, okay so when they come back you um, you know check on the target so when you think about this, thing that happened um and then you know how strong is that feeling now so we measure the suds and um and you were thinking this you know i'm never safe um how true does it feel i am sometimes safe and uh and then notice any you know physical sensations and if there's anything left then we process that okay okay
1: Okay, um, so for time's sake, we're going to maybe start winding this one up, but um, if a student or an intern or clinician like me is saying, hey, I should learn to do this EMDR thing. Which is uh, likely the case. Which is likely the case. Uh, and It's
3: worth it. It, 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 sh- it. it works for one thing. And the other thing is that people get better so much faster.
1: Which is nice. So then, uh, so I I can ask this for myself because I'm knowing I want to take this journey and learn this uh, at some point soon. What would be a first step, a first thing I should read, a first training I should take?
3: So the EMDR training comes in, the basic training comes in two weekends. Um, So the International Association, EMDRIA, will put on... Uh, weekend long training and that it basically introduces people to the the eight phases um, with a little bit of practice and then after that first training people are um, are able to do like a single incident trauma work if they can find somebody who only has one incident <laughs> but um, <laughs> time it's not what it looks like right yeah um, but but they're they're able to do that after the first training um, and then they have some hours of consultation they have some hours of experience and then they come back for the second training um, where you learn more complex things and then um, and then you do some more consultation and then if people are interested in certification um, then there's a process to do that too
2: I believe my wife Michelle is actually on the the tail end of that process, she finished the second class and is now doing more consultation. Mm-hmm. Really excited to see okay. her thrive and love that therapy. Oh, I bet she'll do really well at that. Yeah.
3: So, right. if if people are interested in um, just learning more about EMDR, um, Francine Shapiro wrote a book called "Getting Past Your Past," which is for clients, um, but it's it's really good and it's really helpful. I wouldn't get the EMDR textbook because it won't make any sense (laughs) (laughs) until you've gone through the training. Um, And also the other thing is that in order to be eligible for the training, you have to be a master's level licensed clinician or be in the process of licensure with a supervisor so they don't let just anybody
2: right I think when I I got my EMDR training uh, they hadn't had a protocol for this and so I you know called and said can I can I attend I'm a student they were like I don't know had my supervisor send in a letter and they had to send it to like three or four different people and like you know a few weeks before the conference they're like yeah i guess you can come but it, but now i hear that standard now mm-hmm, i hear that you is. just send a letter and you're good to go yeah and uh and and i don't know i i think it's my personal observation that students that take trainings that don't give them credit while they're students are the ones that tend to continue taking trainings <laughs> when they graduate that's a good <laughs> yeah. sign that's a very promising sign um, i always encourage students to study what they're interested in even when they're in
1: school I'll keep I, you going. it's a good piece of advice i mm-hmm. wish i would have gotten that advice back then too but <laughs> all right so so the book getting past your past by mm-hmm. francine shapiro would mm-hmm. be a good start and then going to uh MDREA, the emdr international association mm-hmm. online yeah uh, looking up where their trainings are the the two weekend training would be a great start
2: right so somebody wants to use you for a referral or for a consultation how would they reach out to you
3: well, they can call me. Okay. Um, my number is 360-949-2524. So that's in Vancouver, Washington. Um, I also have a website, choicescounseling.org. Um, so it's Choices Counseling, all one word. And there's a contact form on there as well. Um, so those are the two best ways. Excellent.
1: All right. Well... Thank you, Jean, for taking Thank us you. through this journey and for explaining to a newbie like me what what just this is all about. Uh, yes, I'm,
3: I enjoy doing that. You probably noticed.
1: Uh, I, I did. I enjoyed it as well. <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, and yes, we unearthed some rabbit trails or some pre-incarnate cities that we must explore some other time so i think you will be back <laughs> so all that to say thank you listener for following us uh please rate and review the show on our various platforms we love comments and feedback also you can email us at gmail, i believe and let's keep the conversation going we'll thank be you. back with more smart council
0: please be sure to rate and review smart council on itunes and soundcloud We love your feedback, so let's keep the conversation going. Follow Smart Counsel on Facebook at at Podcast, on Twitter at at smartcounsel 601 and you can email your questions to SmartCounselPodcast at gmail.com. Josh can be found on the web by searching Neurofeedback Care. Reese can be found at NewPatternCounseling.com. Our theme music is by Nate Botsford. Our logo design is by Thomas Moore. This episode was mastered by Julie Patterson. Smart Council has been produced by Reese Pasimio and Joshua Moore.